As I said at the end of Mosiah chapter 29, the end of the book of Mosiah, the tests of these people's ability to self-govern were not long in coming. In the first year of the reign of the judges, this is now Alma chapter 1 verse 1, Kimoziah is gone, he's warred a good warfare, but it's now time for the people to take up arms in defending themselves, spiritually speaking. He left none to reign in his stead, though more accurately, he left all to reign in his stead. Every person was meant to self-govern, with judges helping to interpret law and decide cases when there were breaches of that self-governance. He had taught them and now left them to govern themselves. He had established laws. They were acknowledged by the people. They were obliged to abide by the laws which he had made. But as quickly as verse 2, they meet their first challenge. In the first year of the reign of Alma in the judgment seat, he doesn't get much time to get up to speed either. There was a man brought before him to be judged, a man who was large and was noted for his much strength. Now we'll soon find out that this is the Book of Mormon's second famous Antichrist. His name is Nehor, though we don't know that yet. And he's the second example of what we met first in Sherem back in Jacob chapter 7. Our third example of an Antichrist, by the way, we'll see in Alma chapter 30 when we meet Korahor. It's interesting to compare and contrast the three, however. In Sherem's case, he was known for his intellectual abilities. He had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. And he was a learned man. It was his persuasive power, his rhetoric of unrighteousness that he used to try to convince people to come away from Christ. In this case, Antichrist number two, we shift from the intellectual to the physical. He's described as a man who was large and was noted for his much strength. Charisma can take many forms. The intellectual acumen of a sherem, the physical stature of a nihor, Either way, something to command the respect, to draw the eyes and attention of people that he wants to get to follow him. In verse 3, he's gone about among the people, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. Now, is this really the end of the world? Having a professional clergy, is that akin to being an antichrist? I hope not. Most of my friends at Divinity School were headed down that path, and they were truly wonderful Christian souls. But what's the danger here? In a way, if they're supported by the people, then it's popularity that they're after. He already said that word, right? They ought to become popular. But to be popular, to be supported by the people, we talk about the popular vote, the populace, the population, that's the root of popular. But to become popular in preaching, there's a danger there of who will that preacher be dependent upon? Is he representing God to the people? Or is he supposed to be representing the people to God? You see, the greatest danger of a popular or professional priesthood is shifting the direction of communication, of who is speaking to whom through that individual. Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist, this prophet who was greater than a prophet? He asked the people, what went you into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? In other words, when you came out to find this John, this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, what did you expect? 
A reed shaken in the wind? When the wind blows, the reeds just bow to it. And when the wind shifts, they just bow in that opposite direction. I've yet to see an obstinate reed that will stand up for its convictions. John was no bendable reed. He stood firm and cried repentance, held people to that standard of righteousness. But preachers that are meant to be popular, that depend upon their congregations for support, who's in charge now? The people. And as we just saw in chapter 29, are the people going to be able to govern themselves? I was in Charleston, South Carolina once with my wife, and there was this old, old historic church that I really wanted to be able to see the inside of. I'm kind of a geek when it comes to religious history and architecture. It's like all great things combined. And I said, we went on a Saturday to go check it out, and it was closed. And my wife was so disappointed for me. She knew I wanted to see it. And I said, oh, I know how to get in. Guess where we're going to church tomorrow? Because there's still a live congregation that meets in this beautiful historic building. So we went to the Latter-day Saint ward in the morning and then went to this congregation in the afternoon. And we heard the preacher, a professional preacher, wonderful man. But I remember at one point he started talking about sin, which was kind of surprising to me. I'd been to enough other, of other churches to realize that sin is kind of a scary thing to talk about because you might offend some of your constituents. And if I rely upon them for my support, I don't want to lose any of my members. Please don't think that I'm just accusing them of self-gratification or so on. But there are legitimate concerns about how do I pay, my loan, pay off my loans for divinity school? How do I keep the lights on at church and as well as at home? I read a wonderful book in divinity school called The Almighty's Dollar, a history of church finance in America. And it's incredible what the clergy is up against economically, even without greed or avarice on their own part entering in. The vast majority of ministers in training that I worked with and studied with were not in it for the money because they knew they wouldn't make much. They felt called to the ministry, just like so many of us have when we got called on missions or so on. But I do remember hearing some of them when we, would, we were in classes together, learning how to preach, learning how to study scripture and so on. And I remember occasionally one of these ministers in training saying, I would love to teach such and such a principle, but I know I can't in my congregation. They would never let me. And coming from a tradition with prophets and apostles that care more about what God commands than what the people are asking for, that came as such a shocking realization to me. I can't teach that because the people won't let me? I don't think that thought ever crosses a prophet's or an apostle's mind. What would the Lord have me say? And they say it. Back to this minister in Charleston. He started talking about sin. Well, as long as you keep that really vague and generic, then you're not going to offend anybody. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sin, sin, horrible stuff, horrible stuff. I've got neighbors all around that probably commit lots of them. But he seemed to start leaning in a more specific direction. I remember this. He goes, we need to overcome sin like, and I'm like, you're going to go there? You're going to get specific? Okay, buckle up. I, I sense this almost imperceptible pause as the wheels were turning frantically. What can I say that's not going to offend any of my congregation? He came up with three and I was amazed at the three he chose. He said, we need to overcome sin, like, what am I going to list? Uh, genocide, human trafficking, and homophobia. And I thought, wow, those are some safe sins. 
kind of looked around the congregation. I didn't see anybody squirm when he mentioned genocide. It's like, oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm not even tempted with that. Human trafficking? No, nope, not guilty here. It was just interesting to go through these innocuous iniquities, so to speak, and realize that he was preserving his popularity among a congregation that he was dependent upon in more ways than one. That kind of popularity tends towards priestcraft. Craft is an interesting word. It's something that we do, right? It's something that we make. It's our livelihood. Joseph Smith had a whole list of crafts that he was concerned about. Priestcraft, lawyer craft were two that I remember off the top of my head. But when priesthood becomes priestcraft, when the preaching, the ministry of the word is, is my craft, it's my skill, it's, it's how I'm trying to make a living, there's a danger there. That's one reason that I'm relieved that even as a professional religious educator, where my craft is teaching, by definition, my craft cannot be creating doctrine. At the root of all of the things that I am able to teach lie prophets and apostles and the word of God that comes from them. It is one of the safety valves I am most grateful for to avoid the kind of popularity that Nehor was recommending. Because what is the specific doctrine that he's trying to make popular? Oh, it tends towards popularity because it's so easy on the ears. No hard sayings here. Verse 4, he testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day. They need not fear nor tremble. They can lift up their heads and rejoice. The Lord created all men. He's redeemed all men. And in the end, all men should have eternal life. You see the danger here? It's verse 4 that's the real concern, not so much verse 3. It's this easygoing universalism of verse 4, not the mere popular priestcraft of verse 3 that's at issue. And yet, do you see how 3 is a foundation for 4? Or how 4 would really subsidize 3? I mean, you want to be popular? Tell people that they're in regardless of how they live their lives. Forget the long list of sins that Paul enumerates, for example, and come up with a little short list of things that nobody's going to feel guilty about. Teach mercy, divorced from justice. Teach salvation, divorced from standards of righteousness. Teach the broad way instead of the straight and narrow path. Make it as easy as you can, and people will come running. That was Nehor's intention anyway. Doesn't this sound a little like Satan's plan? It sounds a lot like it. This path of easy salvation, of a guaranteed return. Hey, God made you. He's going to save you. Everybody's in. Independent of anything you do or do not do. Lucifer could guarantee that not a single soul would be lost. There's no agency. There's no consequence. People have rights and privileges with no responsibilities or consequences. It's the oldest trick in the book for any popular politician. You make promises that you cannot keep and then bask in the popularity that your empty promises have garnered you. This really is the easier wrong instead of the harder right. Well, perhaps some people saw through it at the beginning, but in verse 5, he taught those things so much 
that many did believe on his words. The popularity is starting already. They began to support him and give him money, exactly what he was after back in verse 3. You see, his goals in 3 and his results in 5 are connected by the false doctrine he's teaching in verse 4. He's combined the easy universalism with authority based on popularity, which creates ministers that are beholden to their congregations instead of answering to Christ. In verse 6, he begins to be lifted up in the pride of his heart. He wore very costly apparel. He was already quite the visible specimen beforehand, right? This large man noted for his much strength. There's a great picture that I found in searching for visual aids for this chapter. And though it sure seems anachronistic, it's hard to picture somebody in the first century BC dressing quite like the artist depicted them. Boy, is it a great image of someone who cares so much about his image before the world. Perhaps not historically accurate, but definitely ideologically accurate, in my opinion. Well, Nehor wears costly apparel, begins to establish a church after the manner of his preaching. He's got to get paid by somebody, right? But as he's out preaching to those who believe on his word, he happens across Gideon, this wonderful man we first saw oh, sparing King Noah's life on top of the tower, then preserving the women and children of the people of Limhi, and then finally coming up with a successful plan to deliver them from bondage. He's still around. He's a teacher now. And these two teachers, with very different teachings, end up coming head to head in verse 7. Nehor begins to contend with Gideon sharply. He wants to lead away the people of the church, and Gideon's standing in the way. This is exactly what Sharon was doing with Jacob back in Jacob chapter 7. Or like I shared in the video that I did on Jacob chapter 7, this anti-Mormon that came to me and said, you're my go-to guy because you teach. And if I can save you from the delusion of Mormonism, then I've just saved your students. I, I get this. When he first told me that, I thought, wow, I know this story. I'm Jacob and you're Sherem. I could have said, I'm Gideon and you're Nehor. Either way, if you want to take people out of the church, you're going to have to contend with people that in one way or another are helping them stay in it. But this wonderful man, Gideon, withstood him. And what did he do to withstand him? He admonished him with the words of God. Isn't that the promise in Joseph Smith Matthew? That if you treasure up the words of life, you will not be deceived? Well, that was the weapon that this former warrior now was wielding, the word of God. Verse 8, the man's name was Gideon. He was he who was an instrument in the hands of God to deliver the people of Limhi out of bondage. Exactly the kind of person that an antichrist would have his crosshairs on. Verse 9, because Gideon withstood him with the words of God, he was wroth with Gideon and drew his sword and began to smite him. Interesting that both men are using swords. In the armor of God, the sword, which is the only offensive weapon that we're granted, represents the spirit and the word of God. Quick and powerful, right? Sharper than a two-edged sword. And that's the sword that Gideon is wielding with strength. Meanwhile, his foe, Nehor, placing all of his trust in the arm of flesh, and he had plenty of strong flesh in which to trust, picks up a physical sword and begins to smite Gideon with it. And Gideon, now stricken with many years, 
isn't able to withstand his blows. He was able to withstand his words back in 7, but not his blows in 9, and therefore is slain by the sword. Shocked and outraged, no doubt, the people of the church take this man. He still hasn't been named, by the way, in the text. They bring him to Alma to be judged according to the crimes which he had committed. We saw that last week when Mosiah and Alma were kind of hot potatoing over the people of the church. Is this a sin or is this a crime? Is this something in the responsibility of ecclesiastical leaders or of civil leaders? Well, this was originally ecclesiastical, a matter for the church, priestcraft, and universalism as a doctrine. Well, now it's become a civil issue because of the death of this man. And yet unrepentant of his crime, and perhaps that's fitting, if you believe in an easy universalism where eh, we've all been created, we've all been redeemed, we'll all be, uh, have eternal life, then nothing we do really matters. Doesn't this sound like the priests of Noah? Again, bringing down beliefs instead of preaching repentance to bring up behaviors. So many tie-ins throughout these chapters. In verse 11, Nahor pleads for himself with much boldness, the exact opposite of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Alma sees exactly what he's dealing with and says this is the first time that priestcraft has been introduced among this people. And as if priestcraft weren't bad enough, you've endeavored to enforce it by the sword. And if priestcraft were ever enforced among this people, it would prove their entire destruction. Now in verse 12, Alma calls out what Nehor was hinting at back in verse 3. You call it popularity, I call it priestcraft. And if we remember Nephi's definition of priestcraft back in 2 Nephi 26, this describes Nehor to a T. 2 Nephi 26, 29, He commandeth that there shall be no priestcrafts. For behold, priestcrafts are, so here's his definition, that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world. Doesn't that sound like Nehor wanting popularity? Nephi continues, that they may get gain and praise of the world. It's exactly what Nehor was after. Lifted up in the pride of his heart, wearing costly apparel, wanting the people to support him. And the final element in Nephi's definition, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. That, by the way, gives us one of the clues as to the antidote for priestcraft. This was important to me since I do teach the gospel for a living. If one of the definitive criteria of priestcraft is not to seek the welfare of Zion, then doing all that we do for the welfare of God's people is one of its cures. Nephi gives us another antidote in the following verse, 2 Nephi 26 verse 30. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing. Wherefore, the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity which charity is love. See how he's connecting those two in that verse? He's forbidden one thing, priestcraft. Wherefore, he's commanded another thing, charity, which charity is love. Priestcraft, by the way, doesn't just have to be preaching for money. It can be doing things for popularity. That was the word that we see hinted at back in verse 3, right? Nehor wanted to be popular. He also wanted money. He wanted the costly apparel. He wanted his pride gratified. And charity, the pure love of Christ, is a cure for all of those things. To teach, to serve, to lead, not out of a desire for popularity, 
Not as a gratification of pride. You hear DNC 121 again with that, right? And certainly not to line your pockets and grant you the chance to wear very costly apparel. Rather, love. Charity is the cure for priestcraft. To serve because we love the people that we're serving. And to serve because we love the Lord whom we serve. In any position of influence, whether as gospel teachers or priesthood leaders or anything else in the church, there's a danger of doing it for popularity or pride. And charity helps cure us of it. It helps us purify our motives. And then one last hint Nephi gives us in the verse after that, 2631. The laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion. For if they labor for money, they shall perish. If our purpose is to build up the kingdom of God, if we can purify our motives with charity and a desire to build up Zion, then priestcraft is not the danger for us that it was for Nehor. Especially the kind of sword-enforced priestcraft that Nehor was guilty of. In verse 13, Alma continues, Thou hast shed the blood of a righteous man, yea, a man who has done much good among this people. Were we to spare thee, his blood would come upon us for vengeance. So thou art condemned to die according to the law which was given us by Mosiah, our last king. It's been acknowledged by this people. The people abide by this law. We must. And so justice demands your execution. They carry him to the top of the hill Manti, and there he was caused, or rather did acknowledge, I wonder about that correction. Which of the two is more accurate? Oh, who knows? Seeing the boldness with which Nehor defended himself back in verse 11, it seems like it's going to be more of the caused rather than acknowledged. But either way, he lets people know that what he had taught was contrary to the word of God. Gideon's sword was sharper after all. And there he suffered an ignominious death. Ignominious by the way, meaning despicable, shameful, infamous. I suppose Nehor was popular after all, but not in the way he envisioned. He wanted to be famous. He ended up being infamous instead, infamous. By the way, I skipped over it at the beginning of verse 15, perhaps because Mormon has been skipping over it every verse up to that point. 15 begins, it came to pass that they took him and his name was Nehor. And they carried him to the top of the hill Manti. Almost as an afterthought, just interjected between the middle of the story. They took him, they carried him. Oh yeah, oh yeah. His name was Nehor, by the way. Why didn't he tell us that back in verse 2 when we first met this man? A man who was large and noted for his much strength. We don't get to know his name until he loses it and his life along with it. I think Mormon in abridging this record and presenting it to us in this, in this way. Or perhaps this is the way Alma wrote it to begin with. Either way, there's a lesson here. This man who is after the praise of the world, who wanted to be so popular in people's sight, we don't even know his name until it's too late. It reminds me of the beginning of the book of Exodus, where the Pharaoh is never named. And yet these two lowly Hebrew midwives, talk about no-namers, are named. Shifra and Pua 
in case you were wondering. Or in the New Testament, the story of Lazarus, a beggar, the kind of person whose name we would never know. And then this rich man, the kind of person whose name everyone would know, except the readers of the parable, since he's never named there. In both of those instances, the person who would be popular is unnamed, and God remembers the names of the lowly. Who cares about Nehor? He wanted everyone to. You're so easily forgotten by putting yourself first. Then again, it's very possible that his name wasn't Nehor, and we have no idea what it actually was. The Old Testament particularly is famous for giving names that were more titles, perhaps mnemonic devices or teaching devices, to help us understand what kind of principle is being personified here. A great example is Nabal, with the story of Abigail, his wife, and David. Nabal means fool. I really hope that this sweet mother wasn't looking at a newborn going, I've got a great idea. Let's name this child Fool. Probably didn't happen. But based on his behavior later in life, Nabal is a perfect title for that kind of person, foolish as he was. Well, in the case of Nehor, we can't look in the footnotes and see what it would have meant in Reformed Egyptian. But if we assume, with good reason, I believe, that this civilization, which grows out of a Hebrew background and takes this name with its three consonants, N-H-R, that's the form of most Hebrew root words. Hebrew verbs tend to be three consonant roots. And then with all kinds of different vowels that you interject between them and in front of them and after them to come up with all kinds of words based on that one root. The root N-H-R has some fascinating meanings. Nehar, for example, means river or stream or flow. And isn't that exactly what Nehor wants to do? Just to go with the flow, become popular, you promised universal salvation, just find your easiest way to the guaranteed destination of the sea. This Nehor is preaching exactly that. Figuratively, that word even means prosperity. Kind of this flow of wealth that comes into us. And that's exactly what Nehor is after. That root word can also mean shine or beam or even radiant. And isn't that exactly what Nehor wants to do? To set himself up as a light before the world? Nephi's definition of priestcraft? There actually is a Nehor. This is Nehor with an E. There is a Nehor, a Nehor with an A in the Old Testament. Abraham's grandfather was named Nahor. His brother was named Nahor as well. That Nahor comes, has a different Hebrew letter. It's, instead of a, a soft H, it's a more of a hard guttural. And it's impossible to tell with this Nehor if it's Nehor or Nehor. But Nehor in the Old Testament, that name comes from a word meaning to snort like a horse would, or to snore. It comes from a Hebrew word meaning nostril, nahir. Nahir is nostril. It reminds me of Isaiah's words about what is man that, whose breath is in his nostrils. Who cares? Or King Benjamin, You're, we're nothing. God has to lend us breath. And so almost this snort, this snore, this nostril, this... Who are you? And I think that applies beautifully to Nehor as well. Before we move on and see the aftermath, 
I do want to point out also, like we saw back in Mosiah 29, what another great depiction of the war in heaven. And Satan's promise of guaranteed salvation, independent of repentance or the reconciliation of our will on our part, and this hope for popularity, being lifted up in the pride of his heart. The scriptures are full of types of Christ. Well, Nehor is such a wonderful type of the adversary. He's also an incredible embodiment of the kind of counterfeiting for which Lucifer is so famous. As I was looking for some of these parallels between the truth and the counterfeit, so close it almost seems like the real thing, but just enough off that it's now worthless. How's this for a few of Nehor's counterfeits? His large physical stature as a counterfeit for the spiritual strength that God wants each of us to develop. His preaching of falsehood versus the preaching of truth. What he termed to be the word of God versus the true word of God. Priestcraft as opposed to true selfless service. He testified in verse 4 of falsehood compared to the testimony of truth. Universal redemption guaranteed by God versus the universal opportunity to accept salvation that God does offer all of his children. Nehor guaranteed results. The plan of our father guaranteed opportunity. No agency in the first, all kinds of agency in the other. Nehor's repetitive rhetoric as a counterfeit for the confirming spirit of the Holy Ghost. Nehor's pride versus our trust in God. His costly apparel, a counterfeit for the robes of righteousness that the Lord offers. His false church, a counterfeit for the true. Contention versus persuasion. His physical sword versus Gideon's spiritual sword. And his ignominious death, a counterfeit for the glorious martyrdom that Gideon suffered. Start to finish, Nehor, this Antichrist, is the counterfeit of Christ. And I hope that we can always tell the difference. Well, Nehor's priestcraft ended ignominiously, and yet priestcraft itself did not. In verse 16, this did not put an end to the preaching of priestcraft. You would think that this would serve as a cautionary tale. His death. And yet what people like him learned from him was, ah, it's priestcraft, sin, enforced by the sword, crime. That's where he crossed the line. As long as we keep this as an ecclesiastical case rather than a civil one, we can preach whatever we want, especially if we pretend to believe it. But as long as we don't enforce it, we won't run aground against the civil law. And it shouldn't surprise us that priestcraft doesn't end. Verse 16 says, There were many who loved the vain things of the world. And this is a good way to acquire them. So they go forth preaching false doctrines. They do this for the sake of riches and honor. As long as there are people who care about vanity, the world, riches, honor, there will always be priestcraft. Or lawyer craft. Or doctor craft. Or teacher craft. Or any kind of craft people do that is devoid of charity concern for others, a desire to build up kingdoms more important than one's own, the kinds of craft we might be guilty of are probably innumerable, but the desires seem to be the same. 
Now, like I said before, in verse 17, don't lie about it. At least don't make it obvious that you're lying, because that you'll run up against the law. Liars are punished. But as long as you pretend to preach according to your belief, then the law can't touch you. That's our out. Verse 18, make sure you don't steal or you'll get punished by the law. Make sure you don't murder. You'll get punished just like Nehor was. But as long as you say you believe it, you can teach anything you want. And the more popular you can make it, or better said, the more popular it can make you, the more support you'll be given. Now, all of this tends to increase the persecution that the members of the church faced. In 19 to 22, you see a lot of that on the increase. Verse 19, whosoever did not belong to the church of God began to persecute those who did belong to the church of God, all those who had taken upon them the name of Christ. It almost seems like you either make a name for yourself like Nehor was trying to do, or you've taken upon yourself the name of Christ like these church members have. And there's going to be persecution from the one to the other. Verse 20, yea, they did persecute them and afflict them with all manner of words. Couldn't afflict them with swords anymore, so they'll go with a different kind of weapon. And this because of their humility. Compare the vain things that one group wants to the humility of the other group. They were not proud in their own eyes. And because they did impart the word of God one with another, compare that to the false doctrines that the other group was preaching. They did, this group did it without money and without price, whereas the other group was in it after riches and honor. It's so interesting that why, 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 the, why the big concern? Why persecute them for their humility? Well, they're not doing anything to you. Why, why persecute them for their lay ministry? That doesn't affect you at all, does it? Or does it? The easiest way to get away with a counterfeit is to eliminate the real thing. Because then comparison is impossible. It's your humility that's making our pride so easy to detect. It's your selfless service that's making us look like mercenaries. It's your true word of God that gives the lie to our lying false doctrines. And so the truth has to go. So falsehood can reign undetected. Now in verse 21, there was a strict law among the people of the church that they cannot persecute anyone else. You can't persecute among yourselves. You don't per church members shouldn't persecute other church members. And church members should never persecute non-members. That's verse 21 for you. In other words, there's no retaliation for the kinds of persecution you've been receiving. Unfortunately, in verse 22, not everybody lived up to that. There were many among them, church members, who began to be proud themselves. Proud that they weren't proud in the way the non-member persecutors were. Proud that they were supposedly better than their peers. Proud they were inside the church as opposed to those that were outside the church. Whatever reason, pride comes up. And pride then breeds contention. They contended warmly with their adversaries. Instead of calmly withstanding the opposition with the words of God, like Gideon had earlier in the chapter, they are contending warmly, even unto blows. So now they are fighting back physically. Gideon never did that. They would smite one another with their fists. This is believing in the laying on of hands in the wrong way. I remember reading an article along those lines that during general conference, as the long lines were outside the conference center and the protesters were there with their picket signs, 
one protester evidently crossed the line that a certain church member felt was enforceable with the fists. And a fight did break out. And that, to me, is tragic. My educational background has led me to read a lot of anti-Mormon literature. I study it. I try to understand where people are coming from. It's led me to meet a lot of anti-Mormons and people that just want to have it out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have had to make it a personal promise never to contend warmly, to decide never to be offended, and more importantly, to never get offensive with others. I do a lot of interfaith work too, and sometimes that can lead to some warm contention if we're not careful. One of the most important talks I've ever read on this subject is from Elder Robert D. Hales, who gave a talk in conference years ago called Christian Courage. We have to have the courage to stand up for our beliefs, like Gideon did. Perhaps like these possibly well-meaning church members did originally. But that courage must always be Christian courage. The type that turns the other cheek. The type that cares about the other person. That isn't trying to win an argument, but is trying to maintain a friendship. As Elder Hale said in that beautiful talk, far worse than someone accusing you of not being a Christian is proving them right in the way that you respond to them. And these particular Christians are not being Christian in the way they, they are responding to the persecution that they face. As I've trained groups on interfaith dialogue, it seems like every semester the U of U asks me to come over and teach a class in their cross-cultural communications class on interfaith work. And I'll often use the example of an elephant. Elephants have massive ears to let off all kinds of heat. And notice the contention here is warm. When persecution gets your blood boiling, when conversations become heated, then listen. Be all ears. And just try to hear where the other person is coming from. And try to hear what you're saying. Don't just think, what am I saying? Think, how am I being heard? Is what I'm saying possibly offensive? Are they going to take this the wrong way? Think less about what you're going to say and think more about what are they going to hear. And be careful. Elephants also have sharp tusks and big heavy feet. And so be careful, especially when you're the elephant in the room, when you're the majority. Don't stomp all over other people's beliefs or feelings. And be very careful about the damage you can cause as you cavalierly turn your head, not caring where your tusks go and who you hurt. On the other hand, elephants have very thick skin to help protect them from the sharp tusks of other elephants. And from my perspective, if I can develop both, then I can afford to have conversations with people who have developed neither. If I have developed thick skin, then I don't have to hold them to being careful with their tusks, because I can't guarantee that. And if I can control my own tusks, then I don't have to worry about the thinness of their skin if they haven't developed anything thicker. I can control my end. And it keeps conversation from turning to contention and keeps contention from ever becoming conflict. I admit that this is something that can be hard to do. But these are skills and attributes that we must develop because contention within the church and contention across church lines 
is something that we have to overcome. In verse 23, this is only the second year of Alma's reign as chief judge. The first year was dealing with Nehor. The second year was dealing with this persecution within and outside the church. It's a cause of much affliction to the church, a much trial with the church. We see dividing lines between member and non-member. We see dividing lines between member and member. And as a result in 24, notice these two outcomes. As hearts are getting hardened, some names were blotted out, remembered no more among the people of God. Others, many of them, withdrew themselves from among them. Therefore, in that verse, you see these two possible outcomes. Some are forced to separate themselves from the church. We would call this excommunication or disfellowshipment. Others, many others, sadly, simply withdraw. And do we see that today? People just choosing to withdraw themselves from the church, to blot their own names out, asking that their names be removed from the records of the church. How much of that is because our own pride, afflictions and trials we have brought upon ourselves because of our failure to treat each other the way Christ would have us treat one another. All of this, people being removed from the church, people withdrawing themselves from the church, persecution across lines within the church, all of this, verse 25, is a great trial to those that stand fast in the faith. So here's this third group. They were probably the ones back in verse 20, that maintained humility in the face of vanity and pride, who taught the word of God in the face of false doctrine, who did all these things without money and without price in the face of those that sought riches and honor. These are not saints in name only. These are true disciples of Jesus Christ. And in spite of the trial of faith that they are facing, nevertheless, they were steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God. And they bore with patience the persecution which was heaped upon them. Steadfast, immovable. They were not being pushed around by waves and winds of false doctrine. They were not pushed by the pride of those that wanted to persecute them. They kept the commandments of God. They held to the first great commandment, the vertical one. And they bore with patience their persecutions. They held fast to the second great commandment, loving neighbor, the horizontal commandment. They kept doing what Alma's group had done originally, starting way back in Mosiah 18, when the church was first established at the waters of Mormon. The priests left their labor to impart the word of God. The people left their labors to hear it. Both are making sacrifices. I always feel that when I come before a class to teach, that they're not here for me. And in a way, I'm not here for them. No offense, students, I love you. I'm here for the Lord, and so are you. That I'm sacrificing time to teach, but you are sacrificing time to learn. And one person's sacrifice is not greater than the other, because we're all the same. He makes that clear in 26. Once the priest is done imparting the word of God, once the people are done receiving it, they all return diligently to their labors. The priest doesn't esteem himself above his hearers. The preacher is no better than the hearer. The teacher is not any better than the learner. And I hope you know that I know that. I'm so grateful for the privilege of being able to teach. A privilege that God has given me, but also a privilege that each of you gives me. 
and I thank you for that. I am so blessed by students who teach the teacher, the comments you make, the emails, texts, instant messages that I receive. I am so grateful for the equality I feel with you. In fact, I got an amazing direct message from someone I didn't even really know. I knew his family, but he reached out to me after watching a video and said, there's something I'd love to teach you if you have some time. And we talked and he shared with me an insight into the atonement that was life-changing for me. Student to teacher, quote unquote. And yet he was the one that was really teaching me. Neither one of us better than the other. No teaching up or, teach or talking down, just all equal, rejoicing in the privilege of being able to learn together from a Lord who is far above all of us. At the end of the day, we all just labor every man according to his strength. If one has a strength in teaching, then teach. If one has a strength in leading, then lead. If one has a strength in serving, then serve. I'm so grateful that in our collective lay ministry at church, we are all given opportunities to be equal, to be teacher some one week and learner the next, to be leader one year and follower the next, to all labor according to our strengths, and then to have those strengths magnified and multiplied by other opportunities to serve. If 26 is a consecration of spirituality, then 27 is a consecration of temporality, imparting of their substance, giving to the poor and the needy. We should consecrate our time and talents. That seems to be 26. And we consecrate our possessions. Anything the Lord has given us, that seems to be the suggestion in 27. As a result, 28, we can enjoy continual peace even if persecutions continue. Peace amidst persecution, notwithstanding their persecutions. Not simply peace because of their absence. Peace in 28 then leads to prosperity in 29. Because of the steadiness of the church, they began to be exceedingly rich. They had abundance of all things whatsoever they stood in need. Now, are you getting nervous? Knowing what we know about the pride cycle? Well, you have good reason to be, but never fear, because in verse 30, in their prosperous circumstances, they did not, I'm so grateful for that word, they did not send away any who were naked or hungry or thirst or sick. They did not set their hearts upon riches. No wonder it was so much easier for them to be generous with them. Their heart wasn't on them to begin with. They were liberal to all, old, young, bond-free, male, female, perhaps the most important, whether out of the church or in the church. They had no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Do good to them, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's exactly what these wonderful saints are doing. They are a perfect example of what Jacob taught back in Jacob chapter 2. That before ye seek for riches, and it doesn't seem they, like they were seeking them at all, seek for the kingdom of God. That's what they were after. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, which they had, you shall obtain riches if you seek them, maybe even if you don't. For ye will seek them with the intent to do good. Which is exactly what they did. You know, John Wesley 
the great founder of the Methodist Church, wonderful man, trying to revive Anglicanism, feared that no revival of religious faith would ever be permanent because the way he described it, in terms very much like the pride cycle we're so familiar with, is that a revival of religion brings righteousness and righteousness always brings the blessings of God. And the blessings of God typically include temporal manifestations of those blessings, which unfortunately tends to bring us towards a trust in those things, setting our hearts upon those things, and pride then leads us away from God. Thus, revivals will tend to be perpetual, but not permanent. In other words, we'll keep having them because none of them will ever last. This group seems to be bucking that trend. And as a result, having shown they can be trusted with this, God loves to send water through a hose that refuses to get kinked and keep it all to themselves. Verse 31, they prosper and become far more wealthy than those who do not belong to their church. Because those that are outside of it, verse 32, indulge themselves. Instead of serving others, they indulge themselves. In sorceries, that's an interesting one. I don't know what that entails. But to think about trying to trick people or trying to produce things in the wrong way, perhaps that's one element of that kind of sorcery. Either way, self-centered, self-gratifying. Perhaps that's a good word to describe what Nehor was up to. Kind of the smoke and mirrors to gain popularity and support from people. They indulge themselves in idolatry or idleness. We've seen that, I think, two other times already, haven't we? Where idleness, I-D-L-E, leads to idleness, I-D-O-L, the laziness that is a natural result anytime we worship a God that makes no demands of us. And babblings, envying, strife, costly apparel, pride of their eyes, persecuting, lying, thieving, robbing, committing whoredoms and murdering, all those things that were the desires of the great and spacious building or the great and abominable church. Now, thankfully, there were laws against that. And Alma, the chief judge, enforced them as much as it was possible. And as a result, verse 33, things become more still. People durst not commit any wickedness, if it were known. So, peace returns. But not for long. 